Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to the Explaining History podcast and today I want to talk about uh, a revolutionary moment in world economics that takes place in 1978 to 1979 and creates the, the framework of the world economy that we live in at the moment um, and it's really the, the birth of what we would describe as neoliberal economics. Um, obviously this is um, a transition that happens globally and begins in several different places in America, in China. Um, it had already been uh, attempted uh, using um, dictatorships in South America, particularly Chile. Um, and the decision by uh, America to fully embrace neoliberalism had enormous uh, knock-on effects for Europe uh, and for the Third World. Um, but before we get into that, let's have a little talk about some economic terms here. What do we mean by neoliberalism? Well, it's a term that's bandied about an awful lot um, these days. Perhaps it uh, describes, it's used to describe far too much, you know, any term... Uh, that gets overused, democracy, globalisation, socialism, turns out to mean uh, very little in the long run. Neoliberalism is quite literally, as, as you would imagine, new or reinvented economic liberalism. It is a an attempt to um, kind of revive the economic liberalism of the 19th century, which emphasised a small state, the uh, primacy of market forces, um, and it presented uh, any kind of governmental intervention as um, an, an unwanted necessity at best, i.e. in the guise of you know, police forces and armies, um, and uh, a, a, a huge encumbrance uh, and a kind of a vice at worst. Um, welfare would simply uh, disrupt um, sig signals within a labour market um, and it would allow people to subsist on um, higher, uh, a higher level of subsistence than uh, wages would dictate and therefore would lead to unemployment, that, that kind of thinking. 
Um, and this was, you know, in the heyday of the Industrial Revolution, fairly standard classical economic thought. Um, from the uh, late 19th to the mid-20th century, uh, you see a, in the Western world a rise of social democracy in the guise of uh, things like the Bismarckian uh, social reforms, um, the liberal social reforms, uh, in the run-up to um, the just prior to the First World War, uh, the New Deal, um, and the uh, post-war um, social consensus that lasts uh, all the way until the, the mid to late 1960s when um, the unprecedented global boom starts to uh, come unhinged. And the, lo- the lone voices in the wilderness during this period, I've, I've podcasted about them quite a lot, were the likes of uh, Friedrich uh, Hayek, uh, Ludwig uh, von Mises, um, there were um, e- economists on the uh, the economic and political right that equated um, free markets with free peoples and um, the uh, heavy hand of the state as they saw it with totalitarianism. Um, and their views were seen as eccentric, um, marginalised, um, and they were really not at the acceptable um, uh, not not and the acceptable centre ground of economics at all uh, from the forties um, through to really the the mid nineteen seventies, um, and the reason for this is because a generation a mid century generation of politicians, intellectuals, thinkers, um, and economists had grown up with an orthodoxy that. Um, the state was the only device that could do things like um, pull countries out of uh, depressions and recessions, that could regulate uh, prices and wages effectively, and that could prevent the instability that had led to two world wars um, in the 20th century. And that to um, try to pare back the workings of the state um, was really kind of economic heresy and to simply leave um, countries to the irrational forces of markets again was a nonsense. You find all sorts of writings with uh, people such as Sidney and Beatrice Webb, the uh, Fabian intellectuals, who see market forces as a thing of the past. Um, they would have been, when they were writing in the 20s and 30s, they saw um, the idea of abandoning a con- an economy simply to ride the waves of market forces as um, really extremely backward. After all, in this kind of age of um, modernist thinking, uh, the ability to rationally plan an economy and a society, they, they both looked to the Soviet Union and admired it immensely, um, the ability to rationally plan was an entirely modern idea, uh, an entirely kind of progressive and exciting idea. Um, think of all the things here in the 21st century we imagine we can use science to solve, to control, to govern and to manage. Well, the assumption was in the early 20th century that economies could be managed in roughly the same way. By the 1970s, um, the uh, idea of state planning or state control has gone under something of a kind of a rebrand um, by the rising uh, economic right, the monetarists, 
who saw their opportunity, and by militarists, you know, we, we mean the likes of um, Hayek and uh, Mises, and um, obviously their um, off their protege, uh, Milton Friedman, who saw the crises of the nineteen seventies. Um, inflation and stagnation, and if you if you want check out the previous podcast I've done on this, as um, um, as a, a perfect opportunity to finally start to undo the um, the, the post war consensus. Hayek had encouraged um, the development of the think tank. Uh, particularly things like uh, the Institute of Economic Affairs, um, and the uh, as as a means of um, propagating these seemingly unfashionable ideas, until they managed to get a hold in uh, mainstream thinking and um, are uh, a source of a great copy for uh, journalists who hold uh, similar sympathies and prejudices. Uh, the IEA and the Times had a, a very profitable uh, partnership throughout the 1970s. So in China, the uh, end of the Cultural Revolution uh, with Mao's death in 1976 and the rise of Deng Xiaoping um, saw the uh, the beginnings of what David Harvey calls neoliberalism with Chinese characteristics, uh, the introduction of market forces, and yet the retention of um, large-scale enterprises in the hands of, of the state. So there was a, a curious um, and characteristically Chinese um, way of uh, managing the upside of neoliberalism, allowing um, businesses to compete um, for profit and competitively, um, but avoiding some of neoliberalism's downsides, the um, unpredictability that um, and the um, capriciousness of markets that seem to sweep away uh, industries in uh, the Western world. I'll come on to why in a moment in America and Europe uh, industries were easily swept away. Um, David Harvey, whose book A Brief History of Neoliberalism, um, he points October 1979 as a key point um, with um, the chairman of the Federal Reserve, Paul Volcker, and Paul Volcker, in Yanis Varoufakis's uh, book, And the Week uh, Suffer What They Must, which I've I mentioned before, um, Varoufakis points out that Paul Volcker wasn't a neoliberal uh, by instinct. He'd actually been one of the new dealers. Um, he had uh, been a, a, an adherent of the New Deal. But in his view, the economic world order that had sustained Roosevelt's New Deal and sustained uh, Johnson's uh, Great Society had fallen apart. Um, quite possibly, had they managed, had they been able to to keep this economic world order going, we may never have wound up with neoliberalism. But the reality is that it was not sustainable. What is that world order? Well, the world order is that of, of America being a surplus nation, i.e. America having um, a large quantities of uh, economic surplus 
through selling goods and services overseas. This was not possible from the late 1960s onwards because of two main factors. Firstly, European countries had recovered sufficiently that they could now export to America and America could would start to become a deficit nation. And secondly, America's decision to um, borrow heavily to wage the Vietnam War, which lasted an awful lot longer than the, uh, the USA had bargained for, um, plunges America into deficit status uh, by the 1970s. So a deficit country that can't recycle its currency, um, and again, if you want some more information on um, dollar recycling, go to the previous podcast I've done on um, the stagflation of the 1970s. If you can't recycle your currency because you, you don't have enough of your own currency, then it becomes very difficult for you to become the linchpin of a new economic order. And as America went from surplus to deficit nation, just as Britain in the First World after the First World War had gone from surplus to deficit nation, the um, and f- from being creditor to debtor in essence, the economic order around it uh, and the the economic stability around it by which America had created this uh, mid-century um, social democratic moment. Um, this begins to uh, implode. So David Harvey says that the long-standing commitment in the US liberal democratic state to the principles of the New Deal, which went broadly Keynesian fiscal and monetary policies with full employment as a key objective, was abandoned in favour of a policy designed to quell inflation no matter what the consequences might be for employment. The real rate of interest, which had often been negative during the double-digit inflationary surge of the 1970s, was rendered positive by fiat of the Federal Reserve, so which, by which means fiat currency. Um, the nominal rate of interest was raised overnight and, after a few ups and downs, by July 1981, stood at close to 20%. Now, why is that significant? Well, if you put your rate of interest sky high, you will attract finance and destroy business. Why is that? Well, people will want to put their finance, their, their cash in your banks, their investments in your banks, to earn lots and lots of interest. And the uh, businesses who uh, rely on cheap finance will be crippled. Businesses that need to borrow in the short term to pay wages or to invest in their capital stock will be crippled because their loans will be too expensive to pay back. So in a stroke, Volcker, realising that the world of um, everyone from Roosevelt through to Johnson, and and, and after, in fact, um, that that world had been uh, destroyed, that economic system had been destroyed um, by its own success, um, ushered in a, a new system which was designed to reward finance and punish industry. But Yanis Varoufakis points out that the uh, all was not lost for industry. There had to be a way of continuing to make industry profitable despite uh, huge um, interest rates. And that way was to encourage um, what we would refer to as flexible employment practices, um, trying to make the job market, the labour market more responsive, um, which means essentially lower wages. 
if you can push down the wage bill while keeping interest rates high, you still have your attractive profit margins. And that means that um, people who own capital, who are investors in um, factories and airports and stations and all the infrastructure of modern capitalism, they continue to do extremely well. At this point, as we emerge into the 1980s, there are fewer and fewer actually family-owned businesses and the owners of capital aren't the, uh, you know, the, the entrepreneurs that created um, the, the, you know, the, the great uh, companies of the United States. They're in fact shareholders and so it was another means of pumping money into Wall Street. So neoliberalism um, in this guise uh, was a way Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. One way of describing it is um, a way of benefiting finance and the rest of not just industry but much of society. And as as wages fall, the gap between wages and the cost of living grows. And this, once again, can be plugged by financialization, by loans, credit cards, um, borrowing. Um, and neoliberalism and the development of, uh, you know, debt bubbles uh, goes hand in hand. The um, advent of neoliberalism and the, the growth in, um, in indebtedness that so you can essentially plot on a graph. Volcker made a very candid speech at the University of Warwick in 1978, in which he said, It is tempting to look at the market as an impartial arbiter, but balancing the requirements of a stable international system against the desirability of retaining freedom of action for national policy, a number of countries, including the US, opted for the latter. So this gives us another clue about neoliberalism. Um, neoliberalism in part 
um, is uh, synonymous with the tearing up of the Bretton Woods system. Um, the uh, requirements of a stable international system, as Volcker puts it, um, based on fixed exchange rates and currency values, um, and therefore a kind of a, a fairly, uh, fairly more equitable um, uh, sharing out of the world's wealth in the post-war era. The levels of inequality, um, not just within countries like the US, but obviously between uh, developed and developing nations, dramatically spiraled during the 1980s. And the 1980s is often seen uh, as the, the kind of the, the lost decade for in um, terms of third world development. Um, and again, largely uh, as a result of uh, changes, economic changes that are made in the first world. As the Bretton Woods system collapsed, Volcker was able to come up with a solution. How do you continue to make a, a deficit nation, not a surplus nation anymore, how do you continue to make that deficit nation um, powerful and wealthy? Well, you switch it from being a manufacturing house of things to being a banking house of money and thus you uh, favour finance at the expense of industry using interest rates and policies to keep wages down. And in doing so, you become a magnet for all the world's wealth. American workers, for the first time in their history, and this includes the Great Depression, um, were entering a, a period of declining wages. Um, there had been no experience like it in the post-war era whatsoever. Um, the, the golden years, which were seemed to be kind of synonymous with the development of suburbia, growing living standards, you know, multiple car ownership, cheap fuel, and overall rising living standards actually starts to go into reverse in the 1980s. Then you have this curious uh, irony of America becoming, if anything, more militarily and um, strategically and diplomatically and economically powerful in the 1980s, yet with a growing uh, population of poor citizens. And neoliberalism, when most faithfully applied, um, if you examine uh, an indices called the Gini coefficient, which points and shows inequality in societies, seems to be uh, a device for generating poverty uh, in rich countries. The effect on the rest of the world was a little short of devastating. Uh, loans made in dollars uh, around the world become uh, vastly more expensive. Uh, countries like uh, in the Eastern Bloc, such as Poland and Romania, learn this. Um, and the uh, manner in which um, capitalism had managed to penetrate uh, Soviet-dominated uh, um, countries um, in the 1970s, which Brezhnev had essentially said, well, you know, if you want to borrow from the West, we don't mind it that much, um, had led to these catastrophic consequences and a, a great deal of the crumbling of 
the Eastern Bloc it can be traced back to this degree of financialization. It has even more significant consequences in uh, countries in Africa and South America uh, that essentially go bankrupt because of the uh, rising cost of, of dollar loans. And the fact that uh, investment is shifted away um, very quickly from uh, the third world to the first to take advantage uh, of these uh, super high interest rates. So um, a great deal of the uh, explosion in third world poverty throughout the 1980s is due to in no small part to Volcker's decision. And the transition across the Western world from America to Great Britain to parts of Europe, uh, Canada and Australia um, was that uh, was from uh, manufacturing and industry uh, to finance, uh, and this meant that the uh, difficult uh, demographic in the way of the working class um, needed to undergo certain uh, certain adjustments in the eyes of econo- economists. I labour was overvalued, and in the eyes of neoliberals from the Republicans in America to the Conservatives of Great Britain, overprotected. And due to its overprotected status through union rights, um, it wielded too much power. And therefore, the uh, ability of labour to collectively bargain needed to be reduced. The um, uh, Consequently, finance sees itself uh, as undervalued and is able to um, make a, a strong case to governments around the Western world that it needs its status needs to be enhanced normally by removing uh, restrictions, um, uh, red tape, and regulation. And so the the regulations, particularly in America, that have been in place since the the New Deal uh, and the rather antiquated traditions of the City of London, combined with uh, various uh, currency controls and um, uh, other restrictions, are are lifted. Um, It leads to uh, stock market deregulation and in 19... 86, the uh, City of London's uh, Big Bang, uh, the deregulation of the city began uh, and just 12 months later ended in an enormous stock market crash on Black Monday. The irony really for the neoliberals is that throughout the, this period, throughout the period of Reagan and Thatcher, um, the state doesn't really go into retreat. Um, the size of the state is bigger at the end of the 1980s in Great Britain than it was in 1979. Um, similarly, uh, despite Ronald Reagan's pronouncements that government uh, is the problem, that it's no longer the solution, um, the size of government similarly has, um, has grown uh, throughout America in the 1980s, uh, particularly the size of the US military. In most countries that have experimented with neoliberalism, the um, development of markets uh, has not particularly seen a uh, plurality of uh, players in a given market, such as energy or the media. It's seen really the, the growth of uh, monopoly power. Um, large companies being able, without being uh, regulated, to buy up smaller ones and then form, you know, cartels and conglomerates and that sort of thing, which uh, simply puts uh, unfettered power uh, that may have been wailed by some menacing 
Stalinist bureaucrat type in the hands of uh, unaccountable and unelected corporate power. However, the culture of neoliberalism that uh, has pervaded uh, Western society and really pervades you know, globalised world culture um, via uh, the internet and television and movies and that sort of thing uh, presents in uh, a kind of an Ayn Randian way uh, the uh, the capitalists of the neoliberal era as the the sages um, as the heroes as the figures of, of of public virtue in a way that they would never have been presented during previous epochs of um, the you know social democratic eras uh, in the, the post war years or even the interwar years. Um, during the, the 1920s and 30s. So it shows you um, how neoliberal economics has, in a kind of a hegemonic way, managed to co-opt both politics and culture uh, in the Western world, but also beyond, because you have to remember that neoliberalism has really uh, been uh, the idea of um, the operating idea in countries like India, China, uh, South America, uh, Chile particularly, um, and, and beyond. So uh, from 2008 onwards, uh, we've seen the, the kind of the, the great fracturing of neoliberalism. It's been plunged into crisis uh, during the, the, the world economic crisis in 2008 and has, seems to have kind of limped on in some zombie format with various um, bailouts and um, state subsidies ever since. But the future for the uh, ideology looks particularly bleak, though at the moment there doesn't appear to be uh, any contender waiting in the wings that has sufficient political currency to, to replace it. Anyway, I hope you found this useful tonight, and I will catch you on the next Explaining History podcast. Thanks very much, all the best, and I'll speak to you soon. Bye-bye. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.